is there a way to go up the to from Washington to to uh, to, to Connecticut without going through New Jersey? Can we can we <laughs> go around? You know, uh, I don't want you to do that, but I don't want you to live there. What a kind shooter is like New Jersey. It's like go yeah. through it and learn something, but don't live there. <laughs> This is Just the Right Book, and I am Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. I hope to bring to you some of the very best nonfiction authors, conversations you want to hear about the books you want to read. Most of us think the gold standard of regret world is no regrets. Some of us look on in envy when friends say, nope, no regrets here. Can't wallow in the past, gotta look ahead. The rest of us grapple with what Elizabeth Egan describes as the many tentacled monster that hides under your bed and wraps its sticky arms around your brain in the middle of the night, otherwise known as regret. Has our thinking been all wrong? Well, this is your lucky day. Daniel Pink is here to answer this profound question. Based on research from his American Regret Project and a website Daniel launched, launched, which collected more, I think it's now up to 19,000 regrets from people in over 100 countries, he has again written a book that resets our brain. This is his seventh book titled The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Like many of his previous books, it too immediately hit the New York Times bestseller list. And here's why. Whether the topic is motivation, career guidance, perfect timing, or selling, Daniel Pink brings us storytelling, science, creativity, and an innate understanding of us humans to deliver practical, thought-provoking ideas and knowledge. Along the way, charming us and stunningly giving us the tools to change. Daniel Pink, welcome back to Just the Right Book. Roxanne Cody, thank you for having me, and thank you for that incredibly generous <laughs> introduction. I appreciate it. Well, well, I am a avid fan, so. Um, and right back at you. Thank you, R.J. <laughs> Julia, for selling books. So I couldn't wait to read this book because I'm someone who lives in woulda, coulda, shoulda world, mm. and it made me wonder. Are you the guy with no regrets tattooed somewhere on your body? <laughs> or are you the guy grappling in the middle of the night with that monster I was talking about? I am definitely a person without a no regrets tattoo. I do not have that. <laughs> I can say that without equivocation. Um, uh, I have been the person who has been tormented by the many tentacled monster at night. Um, but I've gotten better at dealing with that in mm. part because of writing this book. But for you, Roxanne, I don't want you to live in woulda, coulda, shoulda land. What I want you to do is pass through it and learn something from it and move on to a better landscape. I don't want you to avoid it. I don't want you to steer around it. You know, like you're, you're you know, you're, you're driving through you're, you know, like, oh my gosh, is there a way to go up the to from Washington to to uh, to to Connecticut without going through New Jersey? Can we can we <laughs> go around? You know, uh, I don't want you to do that, but I don't want you to live there. Yeah, well, you know what? What a kind of shooter is like New Jersey. It's like go yeah. through it and learn something, but don't live there. <laughs> well, 
So two things have helped. Getting older has helped. Interesting. Right? I had my birthday this week. At 73, I'm better. Your book is a big help. So we'll, oh, we'll talk about all the ways in which the book has helped. And all my friends who have listened to my woulda, coulda, shouldas will be relieved <laughs> that they don't have to listen to these stories as much. So you Good. will make a lot of people happy. All right. That's what I'm here for. Um, so you open your book with a quote uh, from James Baldwin, uh, which is, though we would like to live without regrets and sometimes proudly insist that we have none, this is not really possible, if only because we are mortal. So drumby, are we better with or without regrets? We're better with we're better with regrets. And why? Any, well, because because regrets help us uh, if we treat them right. Uh, regrets lead to learning. They lead to growth. They have uh, they, they they clarify our values. Um, and what's confusing, I think, for people is that regret is unpleasant. I don't like mm. experiencing regret. I, I don't enjoy it. Um, and yet it is, we know from 50 years of science that this emotion is ubiquitous in the human experience. It's one of the most common emotions that, that we experience. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings experience, and yet it's unpleasant. So that to me, that creates a little bit of a puzzle. What's the point then? Like, mm -hmm. like, 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 is there a wiring problem in our brains and our bodies and our souls? Like what's, no, it's not. It's actually a wiring advantage. It, it, our, our cognitive machinery is programmed for regret because if we treat it right, it helps us learn. It helps us grow at a more reductive level. It can help us, if we treat it right, it can help us become better negotiators, better strategists, better problem solvers, better parents, better uh, better meaning finders. And so it exists for a reason if we treat it right. And, and Daniel, that reminds me, I mean, it's sort of a basic and obvious question. What motivated you to do this book now? It's, well, I mean, it's because, I mean, I wanna, I wanna come back to your point a little bit about, about aging, uh, because I think that that has a, I think that has an effect. This is, um, this is not a book I would have written 20 years ago. I've been mm -hmm. writing a book for 20 years. There's no way in God's green earth I would have written this book 20 and years ago. And you're in ago. your 50s, I, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't have I didn't have enough mileage on me. And um, but in my 50s, it felt like a book that I was sort of needed to write for myself mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I, I was at a point in my life where I had, to my surprise, suddenly there's room to look back. I mean, it's kind of, I yeah. mean, we, those of you, anybody who's sort of hit my age or above has had that moment where you're like, wait a second, I, there's a lot of room back there. Um, but then I also look this way and say, wait a second, there's a lot, I hope there's a lot of room that way. What can I learn from this part that I can, can I apply to, to that part? The other thing, Roxanne, that I found when I very sheepishly began talking about some of my thoughts about regret is that people responded to it in a way that surprised me. They, mm. they were more interested in it. They wanted to talk about it, that I raised it in this kind of sheepish way. Hey, I just came back and I was like, I'm thinking about this. Like, oh man, I'm thinking about some of my regrets. And like all of a sudden people go, really? I have a regret too, you know? And they, they lean in <laughs> right. in a way that is, that I'm in a, and a lot of new in, best friends. In a, 
Well, it's interesting, or a lot of better friends, you know, because mm. because it is there's it, it builds affinity talking about these kinds of things because it shows what we have in common. It shows that we're all cut from the same cloth, that there is a human condition that we're all part of, and and so th- so that so I'm sorry for that long-winded answer, but it was really you know there's an old line in in, in social science that all research is me search. And I think that's mm-hmm. true for a lot of writers as well. That for me, that again, I, I was dealing with some of my own regrets and wanted to make sense of it. And when I started looking at when I started looking at some of the research on this, I was really surprised by by what it said. Um, and, and, and I was I was surprised by both how ubiquitous it was, just how prevalent it is uh, and also about how useful it can be. Mm. And, you know, later in the conversation, we'll talk about um, the idea that really fascinated me in the book that you talk about when you really categorize your regrets, what you begin to understand is what you value, which is absolutely one of the most powerful concepts that I think you had in the book, because whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 or 70, you're then being informed by, okay, if this is what I regret, and this is what I therefore value. How about how about this idea? How about if I start focusing on doing the things and paying attention to what I value? You know, like light bulb going off. Uh, and and we'll come back to that. One of one of the things that um, when I was reading this book occurred to me is there was a memoir I read probably two years ago maybe a little longer, by Corey Taylor, and it was titled Dying, and it was a memoir about her dying. Hmm. And um, naturally, I think, people started asking her if she had regrets now that she was nearing the end of her life. And she had an interesting answer, and the answer was no, but no because she realized that when she contemplates paths not taken, she doesn't subject them to the vagaries of real life, but rather keeps the outcome in the ideal world. Is that how Mm -hmm. most of us look back on regrets and actions not taken? Sometimes, I mean, it's a really really powerful and insightful passage there. it depends. It it, it 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 depends. And here's what here's where I think is going on, um, and and it's it goes to how we think about ourselves and how we think about human behavior. And and forgive me, forgive me, because it's you know it's it, as you and I are talking, the folks who are listening to this in their cars or on a walk are won't know this, but you and I are talking at about six in, six in the evening. I've had a long day, so I'm going to get a little meta on you here. Mm-hmm. All right, here's what I think is here's what I think is going on. When we think about our behavior, we think about we think about it in very Newtonian mechanistic terms. There's a cause, there's an effect, um, and in physics we have the we have Newtonian physics, which is very straightforward. It's rolling a ball down an inclined plane like we did in high school, but there's also physics of of quantum physics, which are weird, where there's contradictions. You know, like Schrodinger's cat: is the cat dead or alive? Yes. Um, and I think that regret re- re- reveals some of that. And so I actually think that it's that that she is assuming a dichotomy that doesn't really exist. And it's this. Right. 
I think that it's possible. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced that it's possible because I've, I've experienced it myself. That you can have a regret and still be satisfied with your life. Mm. That is, and I'll give you an example. So I, um, I, I took a path to law school because I was an idiot and I was, I was like risk averse and whatever. And so I ended up doing that. It's probably a bad idea for me. If I had it to do over again, I wouldn't do it. But I met my wife in law school. And so, which is the greatest thing that has happened to me. And so if you were to say to me, you can go back and not go to law school, but the price of that is that you can't meet your wife. I'm like, nope, not changing a thing. Right. Okay. Because I'm sad. I like my life now. All right. And I love my kids and I love my wife and I, and I like, you know, I, I, I cherish that. But that doesn't mean I still can't regret that decision. Yeah. It still doesn't mean I can't say, oh, I wonder if I had taken another path. Uh, like, what is it about me that said, what is it about me that, that, that I, that, that, that made that not a great path? What kind of decision flaws did I have in choosing that path? I can learn from that. So it's possible to both have a regret and be perfectly satisfied with your life. That saying you regret X, Y, or Z doesn't negate the idea that you value your current existence. Yeah. So I would put myself in exactly the same category. I think yeah. if I looked at my big regrets, I'd say, but this or but that, and I like my life a lot, you know, say, yeah. same what you're talking about. But for some people, and I think you you talk about the dichotomy of the solace of at least mm -hmm. or the sting of if onlys, because mm -hmm. for some people, they might be looking at regrets and uh, the path they didn't take meant they had a dead-end career or they married someone they didn't want. So explain to us, share with us, um, please, uh, the solace of at least and the sting of if-onlys. Okay, so our brains are extraordinary. We can do gymnastics mentally and cognitively that are more breathtaking than we realize. We can travel, we can do time travel, we can go back in time, we can negate experiences and things like that. It's something that logicians and cognitive scientists call counterfactual thinking. We can conjure a world that runs counter to the actual facts. There are two kinds of counterfactual thinking. One of them is what's called a downward counterfactual, where we say we imagine how things could have been worse. Mm. We imagine how things could have been worse, all right? So, um, uh, and and that is that that begins with an at least. So what I have, because I've collected, as you mentioned at the top, Roxanne, I've collected a lot of regrets from all over the world. And and in the database, I have a lot of regrets that go like this. I shouldn't have married that person. It's usually uh, usually somebody, um, a woman marrying a man. I, I shouldn't have married that that guy. But at least I have these two great kids. Okay, so it's a downward counterfactual, um, and that makes us feel better. You can also do an upward counterfactual where you imagine how things could have turned out better. An upward counterfactual is an if only. An upward counterfactual makes us feel worse. But as I said earlier, it helps us do better mm. if we treat it right. And here's the thing. This is the thing that people don't like. You mentioned before how regret can clarify what we value, right? If I have a value, if, if I have regrets to say about kindness, it tells me that I value kindness. It instructs me on how to do better. But regrets about kindness make me feel bad, right? I don't like having regrets about kindness. Um, 
so we want the instruction and we want the clarification, but we don't want the discomfort. And it doesn't work that way. Yeah. The, you you it, don't get it, one fact, without fact, the other. You can't, you shouldn't, because the discomfort is why you have the clarification. The discomfort mm -hmm. is why you have the instruction. And so, so that's what it is. So at least give comfort, but if only give a boost in performance. Bamba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They're made from super soft materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy layers. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do. They come in a ton of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity that keeps you moving. Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. And Bombas underwear has a barely there feel with second skin support that might make you forget they're even there in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. Our personal favorite product from Bombas is its running socks. They're breathable, they're moisture wicking, and they're perfect both for high impact workouts at the gym or on my long runs on weekends when I go out on the trail. So go to bombas.com slash write book and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash write book for 20% off bombas.com slash write book for women who suffer from any of the broad range of peri post menopausal symptoms who want safe and effective non-drug solutions they can trust only bonafide creates proprietary natural medical products that have earned the uncompensated recommendation of over 8300 doctors to their patients on an ongoing basis Bonafide was created to give women an alternative to effectively relieve the symptoms that accompany hormonal fluctuations within their body, because every woman deserves relief without compromise. Bonafide's mission is to provide women with naturally powerful remedies to safely treat the natural symptoms that occur throughout their lives, from PMS to menopause and everything else along the way. The ingredients in Bonafide products are the result of thorough research, development, and clinical trials resulting in every product being scientifically validated, and that's because safety is the top priority for Bonafide. Every Bonafide product is completely free from hormones and without any alarming side effects. So give Bonafide a try today. No prescription required. It's just real relief without compromise. To get 20% off your first purchase, when you subscribe to any Bonafide product, go to hellobonafide.com slash JRB and use promo code JRB for 20% off at checkout. That's hellobonafide.com slash JRB. This is their best offer anywhere, so check it out today. 
So you talked about these 19,000 uh, regrets that they range uh, from, uh, I, I marked some of them down. Uh, when my husband was hospitalized just before his death, I wanted to climb into the bed next to him to cuddle, but I did not. How I wish I had done that. In 1964, I was invited to join Mississippi Freedom Summer by a college classmate. I took a job with my father's boss in Oklahoma City instead. Oh, yeah, I remember that one, yeah. Following a career path for money instead of for my passion or uh, work, I would have... I would actually enjoy. My mother convinced me I would starve to death if I pursued a career in art. So now I'm stuck behind a desk, tangled in management, red tape, and the life draining out of me. I stopped being mm. nice to Jessica when she got her period at school, which lasted three days, and I called her Bloody Mary. Or I regretted not learning how to read music or play an instrument. I realize now it's still a valuable skill. So when I read those, and I think you've got 19,000 of them. How do you how do you begin to categorize them or think about them having some sort of theme that we can think about? Great. Thanks. Thanks. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting, I think it's a really astute question and something that I'm, I'm keen to talk about. And I'm glad to talk about it from this office because that's where I did it. I can literally show the people who are gathered, at least on the Zoom call, sort of how I went about that. So. Let me take one step back. I also did a piece of quantitative research that is a public opinion survey where I, we surveyed 4,489 Americans about regret. Uh, it's the largest American survey of, of attitudes on regret ever conducted. And what I had there is I had people give me their regret and put it into a category, a category like career, finance, health, romance, whatever. And I found in that, that people's regrets were all over the place. They didn't exist in a single domain. They were really widespread. Um, okay, so I also did this other piece, this other piece of research where I just collected regrets. I was using it mostly for, I, I did it originally mostly for journalistic purposes, just to try to gather some texture and some stories and whatnot. I found to my surprise that I got way more than I ever anticipated. Mm. With one newsletter mentioned in two tweets, we had we got something almost almost immediately got something like fifteen thousand. It was crazy. Yeah. And um, and so here's what I did. So 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 I just want to give you that that. So so I start reading through them, and as I start reading through them, I start note. I start just making notes. I'm doing it fairly analog. I'm looking at a computer and I'm making notes. Literally, you see me holding a pencil right here. Literally making notes on a piece of paper. And so there'll be something like this. I'll, be, I'll see something like um, um, starting a business, okay? I'll see regrets about starting a business. Maybe I'll see that phrase, all right? And I'll, I'll sort of make a note about that. And then I'll see entrepreneur, okay? Something like that. And then what I'll do is when I, when I have a hunch, then I can go into the database. I can, I can go back into the database and say, oh, how many people mentioned, quote, starting a business? How many people mentioned entrepreneur? And I go in there and I'm like, whoa, wait a second, that's a lot. All right, and so I print out something and I have this table behind me and I put it on the table and I just start reading through. I read through the first 15,000. So I start seeing a phrase like speaking up, spoke up. I'm like, whoa, is that really something people are saying or is it just my false impression? I can go into the database, search for that phrase. Wait a second, a lot of people are saying that. Put it over here. <laughs> a lot of regrets about dating, like asking out, all right? 
Seems like there are a lot of them about that. Let's go in and take a look. Whoa, wait a second. That's a thing too. And over time, now this is painstaking, but it's during the pandemic, so I got nothing else to do, right? <laughs> so it so it's but it's it's reading through these things and literally making piles on this debt on this table back here. And 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 so what I found is that around the world people had the same four regrets. They have nothing to do with that surface domain. They have to do with something deeper. And just to round this out. So those so I got a lot of regrets, a lot of regrets about people who wish they had asked somebody out on a date years ago, decades ago. Fascinating. So many of those, Roxanne, so many of them. It's, 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 it is fascinating. All right, then I've got, so that's a romance regret. Then I got people who, who regret not traveling. A lot of people who regret not traveling. Uh, so I got that. All right, that's like a personal regret. And then I got a lot of people who regret staying in a lackluster job and rather than starting their own business, which is what they really wanted to do. All right, so that's a career regret. So we've got a romance regret, a personal regret, a career regret. But what I realized in doing this like painstaking research here in this office with piles of paper is that those are all the same regret. Mm -hmm. That's a regret of if only I'd taken the chance. You're at a juncture. You can play it safe or you can take the chance. You can you can ask that person out on a date or you can wimp out. You can take that you can take that trip even though it's a little bit you're a little uncertain about it or you can stay at home. You can stick in that lackluster job or you can go out on your own. And that's what people regretted. They regretted not being bold. And that's how that's how that's, forgive again another long-winded answer, but that is how I came up with it in this in this very kind of iterative way. Mm -hmm. But it was it was profound for me because what I realized is that at some level in the other survey, when you ask people what kind of regret is this, that we just slot them into the traditional categories. And the traditional categories were concealing more than they were revealing. What was revealing is what was going on underneath the surface. And with remarkable similarity, people around the world kept expressing these same four regrets. And they are. We talked about boldness regrets. That's if only I'd taken the chance. Foundation regrets are, if only I'd done the work. These are people who, a lot of people regret spending too much and saving too little. Huge numbers of people regret, uh, regret, regret that. I don't have a single person who regrets saving too much money. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm dead, I'm dead serious. It's like always the same. It's like, oh, I spent too much and saved too little. There are a lot of regrets about health behavior. I didn't take care of my health and suddenly I'm, you know, um, and sometimes it's a combination. There's one woman in there who says, you know, I didn't take care of my health, I didn't save money, so I'm 62. I'm unhealthy and I'm broke. Mm. Um, um, a, a lot of people, more than I expected, uh, regret not working hard enough in school. Um, and so anyway, so that's if only I'd done the work. So small decisions that, that, that have bigger consequences later on. Boldness regrets we talked about. More regrets if only I'd done the right thing. You're at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. You do the wrong thing. You bully somebody. You cheat on your spouse. You swindle a business partner. Most of us feel pretty bad about that. Um, and for many of us, it sticks with us for a very, very long time. Mm. Moral regrets. And finally, our connection regrets, which are if only I'd reached out. These are regrets about relationships, um, uh, relationships that, that should have been intact or that were intact, um, um, but that have somehow come apart. And right. we don't do anything to uh, repair them. And, and Daniel, is, is, which regret is trickier, the step not taken or the step you took that didn't go well? 
Yeah, it depends, but I, I think what, what you see, and going back to age here a little bit, is what really sticks with people is the, is the, is the inaction regret. And mm. we see pretty clear evidence of this by age. In our 20s or so, people tend to have, in, our, in their 20s, people tend to have roughly the same numbers of regrets of action, what I did, and regrets of inaction, what I didn't do. But as we age, it's not even close. It's about a two to one ratio of inaction regrets over, over action regrets. And I think the reason for that is that action regrets are often easier to resolve. Um, so let's say that I bullied somebody. Um, I have people who go back and, you know, I've heard of many people, I didn't uh, subsequently, because of this, in, in talking about this, uh, who've gone back and apologized to the people that they bullied. They're trying to make amends. They're trying to make restitution. It's an action regret. You can try to undo it. You can try to do something about it. You know, I got people who have a no regrets tattoo who got it removed. All right. So you can you can get your tattoo removed. All right. I oh, I regret having this tattoo. Okay, let's have it removed. You can do what we were talking about before, the downward counterfactual, and at least it. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have married that guy, but at least I have these two great kids. I'll take some of the sting out of it. Inaction regrets, they linger with you. Yeah, but you know what I wondered about when I was reading that, and and you know this goes back a little bit to that memoir, memoirist that I um, was bangling up her quote, is <laughs> that it strikes me that when you have an inaction regret, you're in some way commenting on where you're at. In other words. If you didn't start a business, but you ended up in a startup that you were an employee that went spectacularly well, would you still, you know, you, we've talked about that you can have a regret, yeah. And, yeah. but it may, it, what it made me think about was that if you're thinking about an action not taken, you're really commenting on that you didn't end up where you feel good or expected or wanted to be. Is that a fair I think that's true sometimes. I don't mm -hmm. think that's true all the time though. I, I, yeah. I really, because in, in, in the texture of these conversations I had with people, I don't think that was true all the time. So for instance, um, there are, um, um, but I, think, I do think it's true sometimes. So if you have, um, you, so for instance, you have people who, um, regret not asking somebody out on a date yeah talk and, about bruce talk about bruce and well, bruce is a yeah bruce is i think bruce's is less okay so bruce is a good uh, let, let's talk about bruce so bruce is a guy who is an american guy he's in his early 60s um he um had this incredible moment where he was in europe uh as a uh, after graduating from college he had worked in sweden for a year he was traveling around He's on his train. This woman sits down next to him on the train. Never met her before, obviously. And within minutes, they had like this instant affinity. They were hold, you know, after an hour, they were holding hands, leaning into each other. It was like St. Bruce is like said something like out of a movie. And finally, the train. He's an American guy. She's Belgian. The train's rumbling through France. It gets to Belgium, and she says, "This is my stop. I have to get off." And he doesn't know what to do. He says, "I'll go with you." She says, "No, no, no. My father would kill me." He doesn't know what to do, um, and he. You know, again, it's pre-internet, so he scribbles his mother's mailing address in Texas on a piece of paper, hands it to her, and then he um, they um, hands it to her. They kiss. She gets off the. She she leaves. And Bruce says, 40 years later, I always wish I'd set him off the train." 
Mm. All right. Now, now Bruce is not necessarily happily. I don't think that's because Bruce is not. Bruce is not very happily married right now. And that could contribute to it. There's no question about it. But I don't think it's the only reason. Mm -hmm. And also the other thing, when you talk to people about this, they don't say, oh, my God, if I had stepped off the train, my life would be perfect. If I had asked Susie out on a date or Jose out on a date, I would be married and blissful. Interesting. And like that. The, what they, what they, the, 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 they don't take it that far. What it is is that there is a moment in your life when you could have stepped up and you didn't. Yeah. That's the thing that really bugs people. They're not always taking it to the next, uh, to, to, the, to the consequence. It's the moment. Because if I recall, and I might not be using exactly the right language, you quote Bruce as saying that there was a connection that he had with this woman on the train that he never had again in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that, that, that that's true. So I think I do think that I think it's complicated. That's why I think the question is so smart, that it's complicated, that part of it has to do with our part of it has to do with our the moment we're in right now, some of it, but not all of it mm -hmm. at all. Um, some of it has to do with our memories of who we were and what we did at that moment when we yeah. blew it. Um, and, and this is especially true. This is especially true with those um, with those regrets of boldness, but even regrets about even regrets about morality. All right. Even regrets about morality um, are, you know, uh, like you can have people who they regret bullying somebody years ago and they could have led an exemplary life right now. And so they're not saying, oh, my God, I, like that set me on a path of degeneracy and I've that I've never been been able to escape. They can say, you know, I I've led a have led a perfectly decent upstanding life since then, but it still bugs me. Yeah, that I well, did you that know, all those I, years ago, I was very uh, touched. I listened to your interview uh, with Dax Shepard. Oh, uh -huh. and I was very struck when you were talking about these uh, core categories of regrets about his recalling punching a kid in the stomach in third grade and the kid he remembers the kid's face it feeling like he was going to die and uh, i don't know this i'm just listening to dax Shepard. and he said he seems to have gone on and made plenty of other moral mistakes by his own admission but this one seems to stick with him and you know, you said to him in the interview, well, try to find him. Yeah. Well, that's happened a lot. I mean, at, um, and one of the things that, that the common, I, I don't remember in talking to Dax about this, whether I mentioned this, but one of the things that you see when people go and find the people that they bullied is that the, the victims, the people on the receiving end of the bullying are actually pretty charitable and forgiving. Mm. That that in some ways the people who are in the, the who, people who are instigating it, the people who were delivering the bullying are more troubled by it than the people who were bullied. Not all, not always, um, but I, but again, that's something we can do with action regrets. Yeah, that's something we can do. That's something we can do with with action regrets. The inaction regrets harder harder to do. Harder. Then you have somebody. But 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 here's what you can do. But let's let's let let's let's carry that through because this is this is something that's true for me and something that I've been working on. So at, at some level. So let's call bullying is a moral regret. If only I'd done the right thing. I have a moral regret and it's a regret about, it's not a singular one, it's multiple ones that sort of combined. And it's a regret about kindness. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, earlier in my life, 
uh, when I, you know I, I didn't bully anybody, but I, I've been I, when I was younger, I was in many situations where people were not being treated right. Um, and I saw yeah. it. People were being, especially being left out, being excluded. Mm. That, I mean, even now, it's, it bugs me. And, and, and I saw it and I knew it was like, oh, I, don't, I didn't see anything or I didn't know that was going on. I saw it. I knew it. Oh, I didn't know that was wrong. I knew it was wrong. All right. So I have no alibi here. Um, it, so it's inaction. I didn't do yeah. anything. And it, and it bugs me. Now, again, to or what we were talking about earlier, what is that? I can take that regret and say, oh, my God, I'm the worst person in the world. I don't deserve to live. Bad idea. Don't wallow in it. I can say, nope, no regrets. Nope. Always look. That's a bad idea, too. What I can do is say, wait a second. This pang that I'm feeling, this discomfort, this unsettling feeling of regret that I'm experiencing right now is telling me something. Mm. It is telling me what I value, kindness. It's instructing me on what to do next. Be kinder. And to that point, let's go to that part of the book that I referred to earlier, because that to me, there are a lot of great parts of the book. And I, you know, I have it uh, for those that are on, I have like, you know, 90 million pages marked down and everything underlined. But this idea of using your regret to determine what you value is powerful. So talk a little bit about how those core regrets reflect yeah. a, a set of values. Yeah, but I think that I think it does it pretty directly in that these four core regrets are, you know, again, the metaphor that I use, although I had to explain it in the book, because we have readers 25 and under, the metaphor that I use is a metaphor of a photographic negative, which people who <laughs> they never heard of that. <laughs> I'm not kidding around. I mean, you just people, know photographs from your phone, right? <laughs> it's digital photography doesn't have negatives, right? <laughs> Film photography has negatives. So I had, so I felt like an idiot explaining that, but I realized that if I didn't do that, uh, like, like, I, like one of my kids, I need to ask him this. I think one of my kids has no idea what a photographic negative is. Mm. I, I think he, my 19 year old, I don't think he has any, I, not because he's a stupid kid, but because he's like, he doesn't have, he's never seen that before. Yeah. You know, he's never seen a film. Um, so um, anyway, um, and, and if we take all these four regrets, we, when we look at the reverse image of them and it tells us, I think, what human beings value. Mm. Uh, so so foundation regrets, people value stability. You want a good life that has some stability to it. It's not wobbly. Um, boldness regrets, um, people value growth and learning and and doing something in their limited time on the planet. Um, there's a concept in a recent concept in the social psychology literature called psychological richness, which is that people want to live, they want to enjoy, they want to experience and have adventures and do stuff. Third, moral regrets. I'm convinced most of us want to be good. Yeah, I think we're moral. I'm I totally we're, there. I, we're, we're moral animals. 99% of us feel shitty when, excuse me, feel bad when we, when we. You can don't swear act it's a podcast. Okay, good. No, most of us feel bad. We do. Like most of us feel bad when we do the wrong thing. There's a yeah. reason for that. We, I think most of us are moral and want to be moral. Not all of us. That's, and that's the problem. But I think most of us. And then finally, connection regrets. What do we want? We want love. And, and again, a, a, a broader notion of love, not only love in the romantic sense, 
but the love we have for everybody. And so when we line these things up, that's what constitutes a good life. You want some stability. You want to be able to learn and grow and do stuff. You want to do the right thing and you want love. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that you talk about, uh, in the book and it, and it's, it's both about dealing with your regrets and we'll, we'll get to the idea of how you defang a regret. Yeah. But part of what was a, an, an, just a reminder to me, it's not anything that I wouldn't have known is that you actually build connection and intimacy by being vulnerable, by it, by disclosing what your regret is. It doesn't, you know, it's interesting to me, but not surprising that so many people poured out their feelings of regrets, because I think a lot of people must feel they've got nowhere to put that information. Nobody's ever asked them, or they've been afraid to even tell their spouse, you know, how would you tell your spouse? How would Bruce tell his spouse? Bruce that has never told Sandy, his spouse this. You know, Sandy on the train was the only time in his whole life he felt <laughs> that, you know, you're not uh -huh. going to disclose that information to your wife, yeah. right? That's not yeah. going to look too good. But yeah. on some level, not disclosing that information makes it must make it corrosive. Uh, it's a great it's a great point. In fact, I think I think you're making two points there. One of them is that it, on, on the benefits of disclosure, I think there are two separate points on, on what you're, that you're making about, about about disclosure itself. So I actually was surprised that so many people poor. Yeah, uh, I'm not. Can, 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 yeah. See, I was. I was maybe um, I, I was I, I was surprised by how many people did it and how incredibly forthcoming people were mm. and the volume of it just it continues to blow me away. Now, um, so what is it about that? So disclosure is, as you're suggesting, is a form of unburdening. That's one of the reasons that it, it so it's, it's helpful in making sense of our regrets and then ultimately extracting lessons from them. So disclosure is unburdening. But you said something earlier too, just a moment ago, is that disclosure to something else is that when we disclose it public, when we disclose it to someone else directly, um, it builds affinity. And, mm -hmm. um, and we, we worry that people, when we disclose our mistakes, our vulnerabilities, to use your word, when we disclose our vulnerabilities to other people, our mistakes or screw ups, that people will think less of us when in fact, not every time, but most time people think more of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and, you know, and so you're, there is a kind of, to use your word again, there is a kind of corrosiveness of, of keeping it inside because what corrodes is your sense of self because you're, you're chewing yourself up over this thing. What also is corrosive is that you're creating this kind of layer of rust to keep the metaphor going that prevents you from building affinity with somebody else. I thought I knew my mom better than anyone. One day we were chatting and she told me a story I'd never heard before. And that got me wondering, how many other stories don't I know? And that's why I got my mom, StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories and preserves them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought of, like what's some of the best advi advice your mother gave you, or if you were to do it all over, what would you do differently? 
I've really enjoyed reading my mom's answers to those questions. I've discovered stories and memories I never heard about and learned new things about stories I thought I really knew. Like one story I never knew was that my mom and my grandmother once a week would go and eat Chinese food. My mom might take her to a doctor's appointment, might take her to a haircut, but the one thing that really brought it together was my grandmother's love for Chinese food and not even anything fancy. Your basic Americanized Chinese food, sweet and sour chicken, uh, some shrimp fried rice. Um, but that's the memory that my mom really reflects on when she thinks about the best times that my mom and my grandmother had together. After one year, StoryWorth compiles all those questions and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book the whole family can share for generations. It could be on your bookshelf. You can bring it out at parties. Um, I know my mom loves to show off, and so she can use that book and show anyone possible that she can tell about the things that she's done on StoryWorth. So give the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash justthewritebook. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash justthewritebook to save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash justthewritebook. You know, the other part that I've, I've watched over the years uh, because, and part of it is people unceasingly fascinate me, is that when you make space safe for people and they disclose things, even if they're not nice things, they get in a better mood. Interesting point. Well, I, I think that's because they, uh, um, I think it's because I'm unburdening. I think what you might be seeing there, Roxanne, is people are in a lighter mood because a weight yeah. has been lifted. Yeah. It is a, it is a, it's an, it's an unburdening. It's like, oh, I've been carrying this, you know, I've been carrying this. Is, I mean, you're, you're the, I have my backpack on my floor, right? And I had a, I went out earlier today and, and I had a lot of, I had my like laptop and all the garbage in it and I had it in my back and I was like, oh my God, this is a heavy backpack. And when you take it off, oh, yeah, you're relieved. Feel that better, yeah. So we talked about because uh, we're we just have a couple of minutes left, and everybody's just going to have to read every page of the book, which is what I'm going to encourage them. Uh, as to long do. as they as long as they purchase it from R.J. Julia or their favorite independent bookseller. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we talked about one of the ways to defang a regret, and that was disclosure. Yeah. What are the other two that you talk, you talk about compassion and distance? Yeah. So one of the really important things that we can do, and I think it's actually in some ways the first step, is is how we frame the regret and how we reframe the regret and ourselves. So um, so when we when we make a mistake, we tend to beat ourselves up. We talk to ourselves in very cruel ways. If you think about our, if you if you ever to. I encourage people to sort of think about their own self-talk. How do they talk about themselves? What do they say to themselves? And it's usually brutal and cruel. So you're better off not doing that. You're better off practicing what's called self-compassion, uh, which is a really powerful line of research pioneered by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. 
And essentially what you should do with your regret is first treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that your regret is part of the human condition and also that it's a moment in your time, in your life, not the full measure of your life. Mm -hmm. And so that itself is a form of, you know, the combination of that, the disclosure in that is like, okay, you're sort of, you're normalizing it. You're taking the weight off. The other thing you do with disclosure is that you make sense of it. So by when you when we convert it to language, we take this blobby, you know, you, you even the metaphor you used at the at the top about this multi tentacled menace, all right, this kind of blobby abstraction, menacing abstraction. When we convert that into words, it's more concrete and less menacing. Um, and so those are some things we can do. So so forgive yourself, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Disclose to make sense of it. But the final step is also really, really, really important. You have to extract a lesson from it, mm -hmm. right? You have to extract a lesson from it and you have to do that systematically. We tend to be not very good at doing that for ourselves. So you have to get some distance. And so, you know, things like asking yourself, you know, what should Roxanne do in, in the face of this, right? Talking to yourself in the third person or uh, asking yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do in this situation? Or imagining yourself in uh, 10 years, um, what does that person want you to do here? Get some distance. And when we do that in a systematic way with these negative emotions, especially this particular negative emotion, we treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. We convert to language to make sense of it. And we take a step back and extract a lesson from it. It is a powerful mm. tool for improvement. It's powerful. Um, it helps us get better. It helps us learn. It helps us grow. And I guess what's frustrating to me is that we've been sort of sold a bill of goods saying that we should be positive all the time rather than teaching people this very simple process for dealing with negative emotions. Yeah, I, I use my journal for this. And I think if if I die and I haven't burned the journals, people would think I had a life of regrets because I used that process to deal with them. Uh, but, but there's a lot of evidence about this, that, but, that, but that's very healthy. I mean, James Pennebaker, also of the University of Texas, has 30 years of research showing the benefits of writing, especially about negative emotions. And so when you, the disclosure, while the disclosure to others isn't unburdening and a way to build affinity, it doesn't always have to be public. That mm -hmm. simply writing about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days, that itself is useful because Again, to make this clear, emotions are abstract. They're blobby. They're amorphous. They're multi-tentacle, right? You have to convert them. Bingo! You have to you have to convert them into from an abstraction into something concrete. Because things that are concrete are less menacing because we can make sense of them. And so that's what even writing about them writing about them does. We see this in a whole array of therapeutic techniques where you know, and which we should be teaching to our kids. So it's saying, so, you know, if a kid comes home and, and it's sort of feeling, um, um, uh, I don't want to use the word yet, I, sort of saying, oh, I'm so upset because I tried to do this and it didn't work and I tried to do it that way and it didn't work. It's like, okay, what you're feeling is frustration. Oh, there's a name for this feeling. Okay, that's a way to defang it. Let's name it. Let's, let's, let's take this kind of amorphousness, make it concrete name it and use that to make sense of it. And, and it's a, and he, the thing that bugs me, and obviously you can tell from this conversation that a lot of things bug me, is that, <laughs> is, is that we're not giving people, especially young people, the tools yeah. 
to deal with negative emotions, which are part of life. Okay, well, we're gonna get the word out there. So let me close with this question uh, for you, Mr. Pink. Yes. What were you surprised that you learned after writing the book? What was I surprised about this, what I found? That you learned about yourself. Oh, that I learned about myself. Oh, um, what I learned was that um, I'm a lot like everybody else. Mm. That a lot of the regrets that I have are regrets that lots of people have. Yeah. Um, and that what I want out of life is what a lot of people want out of life. And that what I should be doing perhaps is focusing on those things rather than the extraneous nonsense that typically we, we focus on, but also doing what I can to help the people who I love and care about find some stability, have a chance to be bold, do the right thing and connect to, and, and connect to other people that they love. So yeah. uh, I think that's what it was for me. Well, I, and I think you'll do that for probably millions of people who uh, read the book. We've been talking with um, Daniel H. Pink, the author of Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And Daniel, I just think, I mean, I love all your books, Hey, thanks. I, this one, you know, so resonated with me, but we didn't cover all the, all there's the so much more stuff in there. There's so and much more. You got to buy the book. It's such a good value too, with all the incredible life changing insights and storytelling that's in there. My God, you should pay double. Oh, Daniel, that reminds me of something I've heard you say that th this sort of has nothing to do with the podcast, but you and I might be the only two people who agree on the concept of nonfiction books should be shorter and people will not mind paying for them. I've been saying this to publishers for decades. I, I call them books. How did you know that about me? Did I say that I don't that know. I, I, I read it yeah. or heard it somewhere. I, I believe that so fervently. Me too. I and 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 I work so hard, Roxanne, not to make well, my books do. too long. This book and is like two hundred pages, perfect. I, 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 right, and because I don't put in anything extraneous. Here's the thing. Can I just give you one little tidbit here? Yes. All right. Here we go. So I spent a month reading the literature on the development of regret in children. Right. There's a huge amount of research on this. And right. I read through all of it uh, because I was trying to be as meticulous as I possibly could. It probably took maybe not a month, three weeks. And I made the notes and I had the paper stacked up and whatnot. And then I got to writing and I got into the book and I was like, oh my God, I can explain it in a paragraph. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, I have a choice here. I can say, well, wait a second. I did all this work. Look how smart you, I am. <laughs> and you guys are going to, I did this work. And so this is, it's got to be four or five pages or, and don't do that. Leave out the extreme, yeah. lay out the extreme stuff. There's so many nonfiction books that would be twice as good if they were half as long. Yeah. We agree about that. We could, we could, we could go on the road to the publishers and try to convince them more people would buy those shorter books. Uh, if they were, if they were, if they were good, that is, if they well, had a lot of, yeah. yeah, obviously, yeah. If they had that kind of bang for the buck, when I edit, I make every word fight for its life. Well, you every studied word, linguistics. Every word in that, every word in that text has to say to me, 
you has to explain to me why it doesn't deserve to die. Okay. With and on that, that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> um, Daniel, really, thanks for coming back to Just the Right Book. You know, as booksellers, um, we 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 uh, take pleasure and satisfaction from really believing by putting the right book in the right hand, you can change a life. With with this book on uh, regret, you, literally, I feel like putting that book in someone's hands could change their life. So well, thank many you, thanks. I appreciate that. Many thanks for the book and many thanks for taking the time uh, to join us on Just the Right Book. What a pleasure. And thank you for selling books and doing that noble work of putting the right book in people's hands. Thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, please tell all your friends about it. You can uh, find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. For women who suffer from any of the broad range of peri-post-menopausal symptoms, who want safe and effective non-drug solutions they can trust, only Bonafide creates proprietary natural medical products that have earned the uncompensated recommendation of over 8,300 doctors to their patients on an ongoing basis. Bonafide was created to give women an alternative to effectively relieve the symptoms that accompany hormonal fluctuations within their body because every woman deserves relief without compromise. Bonafide's mission is to provide women with naturally powerful remedies to safely treat the natural symptoms that occur throughout their lives, from PMS to menopause and everything else along the way. The ingredients in Bonafide products are the result of thorough research, development, and clinical trials resulting in every product being scientifically validated, and that's because safety is the top priority for Bonafide. Every Bonafide product is completely free from hormones and without any alarming side effects. So give Bonafide a try today. No prescription required. It's just real relief without compromise. To get 20% off your first purchase when you subscribe to any Bonafide product, go to hellobonafide.com slash JRB and use promo code JRB for 20% off at checkout. That's hello. B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E dot com slash J-R-B. This is their best offer anywhere, so check it out today.